I've always thought that when, uh, wh however you get your DNA, uh, that whenever mine was handed out, I missed the risk averse DNA. I just, I'm, my mind always goes to the opportunities and what can be done with the opportunity. And I, I very often overlook the political uh, you know, risks that are entailed or other kinds of risks. I'm just not very risk oriented. And, but I think that's helpful for in, innovation, but I, it's not, that's not something I worked on. It's just, it's the way I'm wired. Welcome to season two of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short term and in the years to come are immense. And yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You. I'm very excited to have as our guest today someone who has had a profound impact on my professional career. Dr. David G. Horner is a former boss, a mentor, and someone from whom I have learned a great deal about how to innovate within a higher education setting. Since 2008, David has served as president of the American College of Greece. Prior to ACG, he served as president of North Park University in Chicago for 18 years, and before that, as president of his alma mater, Barrington College in Rhode Island, for six years. David earned a bachelor's degree from Barrington, a master's in philosophy from the University of Rhode Island, and an MBA and PhD in higher ed administration and policy analysis from Stanford University. David, we'd like to start out by asking our guests about their professional journey. Can you tell us how you found yourself in a college presidency at such a young age? So I think for me, as I think about how I got into, uh, you know, first of all, going, going to college, not knowing what you want to study, let alone what you want to be in life. Uh, I can remember thinking I should be an FBI agent. Uh, or a uh, criminal defense lawyer or something like that. Those were popular television shows that informed my thinking. But uh, more further along in my educational journey, I think like for many of us, I was fortunate to have mentors in my life who, who put me on this track. And I can think of three specific mentors. One was the Dean of Students at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, who was a friend of the family, used to come to our home after church on Sundays for lunch. And he very early on, probably in, in my teenage years, was suggesting to me that he thought college, working with colleges and universities is something that uh, had been fulfilling for him and thought uh, my interests might move me in that direction. I think he's the first person who I can consciously remember, uh, talk to me about that kind of career. Then as an undergraduate, and I graduated from Barrington College, my major professor there, Carlton Gregory, a philosophy professor, uh, took an interest in me and introduced me one day uh, to a dean of a small church-related school, Eastern Nazarene College near Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, that dean was visiting, and he, he asked me to have lunch with that dean so the dean could talk about the work that he did uh, with the purpose of, of, of just ex exposing me to that kind of vocation. Um, and then the third mentor, I would say, was in my graduate, my initial graduate degree was a master's degree in philosophy at the University of Rhode Island, and serendipitously, I ended up sharing an office with the recently 
resigned president of Providence College. His name was Dr. William Haas. He was when I was sharing the office with him, he became a distinguished alumni visiting professor at URI and a professor of mine in philosophy. Um, they were cramped for office space, so we ended up sharing an office uh, as both student and professor. But he recently had stepped down from the presidency of Providence College, a very successful presidency. Uh, we ended up in this office together, both of us our first year at the University of Rhode Island. And he talked to me a lot about what it was like to be a, a college president, a university president. And he specifically suggested to me that if I was interested in college admi administration, not necessarily the presidency, he advised me to take what he called the shorter route, which was to go to a program in higher education administration rather than the longer route through the academic uh, professoriate, uh, which was really the sort of the track I was on was to pursue graduate work in philosophy, then probably teaching in philosophy. Um, he, he suggested, he said, I, I think you'd love the uh, academic administration. You obviously understand the academic world. Uh, but he said, I think the challenges of higher education in the future, this was in the early 1970s, uh, are going to be such that specialization, people with specialization are really going to be needed. And he said, I, I would encourage you to go that way. That led me to Stanford to the MBA and the PhD program in, in higher ed. Let me, let me finish uh, this question by saying, even though I went to Stanford with that idea in mind, um, I, I, I didn't have any clear notion that I would be a college president. Although I do remember in our first classes at the business school, they asked us going around the room, I had 59 other students in our 60 student uh, Stanford M MBA sort of homeroom classroom, and I asked each person to say, what was your uh, ambition? Most of these very aggressive Stanford MBA students talked about wanting to make a lot of money uh, or do something else in the commercial sector. And I sat there wondering, you know, what would I say that would make sense to this group of high need achievers as they were known at Stanford? Um, and so I said, I, my aspiration was to be a college president. I thought that would be a sufficiently ambitious aspiration to make some sense to them. Um, but even though I said that in 1975, I really didn't expect that by 1979, um, I would be a college president uh, shortly after I left Stanford. And just finally, I will say uh, to, to draw the circle around to where I started, the way I got to be a college president was again a mentor the, my major professor in philosophy from Barrington College was on the search committee and he nominated me. So I got this nomination. I ignored it because I thought it was ridiculous. I was 28 or 29 years old at the time. And he called me and he said, no, it's a serious nomination. I, we want you to apply. Uh, and he persuaded me that they would take my application seriously despite my age. And, and so with his encouragement, I applied and, and got the position. And, and I've been most of my years since a college president. So it's been, the involvement of mentors has been really significant in my life. David, you have led three distinctly different institutions and you have innovated and strengthened each one in very different ways. Can you tell us about the process you went through at each campus to figure out the strategic direction and more specifically, how did you find the opportunities for each institution that you ultimately pursued? Um, I'm going to I'm going to describe for you the three institutions, and in each case, I'm going to I'm going to introduce each of them with with the phrase "going concern." Uh, at Barrington College, what I found was a going concern qualification. This wasn't a surprise; it was on the audit of their financial statement. The college had very meager financial resources. It was in a lot of debt. It had run 10 consecutive operating deficits. Uh, its institutional neighbor, Brown University up the street had done the same thing over the last 10 years, but Brown had a lot more financial margin than Barrington. And so Barrington had what is normally the kiss of death uh, financially on a financial statement. Uh, the auditors said it's not, it, it, they couldn't, have confidence that this was a going concern that would be able to continue. 
I remember being uh, in, the, in, in the faculty interviews for the position, one young psychology faculty member asked if I could say that if I came to Barrington, I would not use it as a stepping stone uh, to some more prominent uh, higher education position. And I told him, I said, you know, that's an interesting uh, metaphor, a stone. I've, I, I know the Barrington situation since I graduated from here. Uh, I know the Barrington situation very well. Uh, if I was going to use a metaphor of a stone for Barrington in my position here, I wouldn't say it would be a stepping stone. I'd say rather probably it would more likely be a millstone uh, because this, this, this does not, you know, this is not a promising uh, institutional situation, which is, uh, it has a lot of challenges. Uh, my desire to go to Barrington was all about, you know, the personal connection that I had to the place and the people there. Uh, I hoped that we could make a going concern out of it, but I knew the, you know, the odds were, were against it. Um, because I knew the institution quite well, I also knew going into it that they had had some discussions in the past about a merger with its arch rival, Gordon College, 85 miles to the north. And actually, within three weeks of taking the job in July of 1979, I had an agreement in principle to merge the college uh, in place. So it didn't take very long to develop and execute that strategy. The Barrington uh, Executive Committee approved that merger, but the Gordon Executive Committee uh, ultimately balked because of concern around the debt of Barrington. So for the next five years, we, we, we had five balanced budgets. We uh, eliminated some debt, but it was still my belief that the school was not a, really a going concern. It didn't have the resources, I didn't think, to make it. And I really felt that the mission alignment between Gordon and Barrington was sufficiently close. There were differences. Those differences you know, meant a lot to some of us. But ultimately, I thought to the students and the families we served, the missions were sufficiently close that it made more sense to put the schools together. Um, so fundamentally, that was a strategy built around a lack of resources and an inability to, to project a, uh, a robust future for the institution. I will say in hindsight, everything that's happened since then at least you know, vindicates in my mind, if, no, if in nobody else's mind, that it was a wise move. I, I can't imagine Barrington having made it through what has occurred over the last uh, 30 or so years. The second uh, school, North Park, I would describe as what I inherited there was going concern paranoia. I say it's paranoia because I was coming from Barrington and I knew what real, a real going concern or, or, or the absence of a going concern looked like. And it was obvious to me that North Park was nowhere near the, you know, the margin of existence that Barrington was functioning on. So part of my early work at, at, at North Park was to inject some confidence into the place that they really were not going out of business. There was no need for them to go out of business. They had lost 30% of their enrollment in the preceding several years. Uh, they were feeling that pinch, they'd laid off people, but there was still, I thought, a lot, of, a lot of things to work with there. The two, what I would describe as the two strategic pillars that I had at North Park that I didn't have at Barrington were, first of all, the city of Chicago, which is a major metropolitan population center where there's lots of educational opportunity. And the other thing was it was, a, it was a, a singular institution sponsored by a denomination that had some resources, the Evangelical Covenant Church. So I saw those two things as building blocks that I didn't have at Barrington. Uh, and around those two building blocks, we really tried um, to develop North Park. I think that was reasonably successful. Um, and uh, we, I think we did some relatively innovative things there uh, we did one of the early tuition restructuring plans in 2004. Um, but basically, there, were, there, were, there was strength there in, the, in Chicago and the denomination that was a basis to build with, and a strategy was developed around that. At the American College of Greece, I, will, I would say, I will again say it was a going concern, very much a going concern, no debt, $200 million of endowment, a beautiful campus. Um, but I would describe it as a going concern plantation. What I mean by that is my predecessor had been there for 33 years, 
And so the, the, the board talked to me about needing to make the shift from a sort of a personalized organization to an institutional organization. Now there again, I found what I think have been the two most important strategic pillars to build around. And that was uh, that the American College of Greece doesn't have a peer institution in Greece. Greece is about 11 million people. It has about 45 independent or private institutions. It's mainly a public university dominated environment. None of those schools are peer institutions to the American College of Greece. So unlike any school I can think of in the United States that would always have a number of peer institutions to complicate their lives, the American College of Greece in Greece has none such. There, there is no peer institution. And then the second major pillar was being in Greece 6,000 miles from the US, but linked into the US system of higher education, we had the ability uh, to, to connect programs to the world's greatest higher education system without being a competitor in that system. So we are a, a resource to American higher education. And these, these two advantages are huge by comparison to anything else I've had to work with. And so I think the, the results in terms of performance have been very strong because the strategic situation was totally different, more financial resources in a totally different strategic context. At the time of your appointment as president of Barrington College, you were at age 29, the youngest college or university president in the United States. I'm wondering if your age impacted your leadership capabilities in any way, did your age give you an advantage or not? Uh, and, and then what do you now know that you wish you had known when assuming your first presidency? So I would say uh, I, I, never, I never consciously use my age, uh, you know, sort of as, uh, a, as something that I could build on. I, I was aware of the fact that I was uh, always the youngest person in the room when the college presidents got together, uh, you know, in the state of Rhode Island for example, um, but, but uh, generally speaking, you know, I was, I was just something of a novelty. And, and, and so there were some, you know, newspaper stories about my being the youngest college president, not the youngest college president ever in the US. I think, um, you know, that belongs uh, to, to, other, to other people, but, but I, was the youngest at, I was the youngest at the time. I think Leon Botstein at 22 was the youngest ever. But, um, but so yeah, it, I, it got me some PR, but generally speaking, it probably just got me some grace from people that people didn't expect that much from me. They, 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 they were willing to give me more of a margin of error. Uh, and I think that was advantageous, although I wasn't, I'm not conscious that I ever, you know, tried to deliberately play to that. Um, but I think I had, I had that advantage. Uh, in terms of, uh, what I, I, I know a lot more now, obviously, about what it takes to move an institution. And the main thing I know is how hard it is to move an institution from wherever it is today to some sort of radically different future. There is something, um, higher education institutions are hard to move. You know, they, they, are, they are positioned by the, their public perception in ways that don't make it easy for them to shift uh, easily. Uh, there's obviously, they are famously uh, not the most open to change internally. So you've got all of the internal, internal factors. But more than that, I, I just, it comes back to the resource question that you are certainly in the American system, you're up against such formidable opposition that is so well resourced that if, if both North Park and Barrington were, were under-resourced compared to their competitors. And no matter what you do, no matter how creative you get, it is really hard to move the needle without, you know, without significant resources. Um, so I would say the main thing would be, at 29, I thought it would be much easier to, you know, to be a transformational leader of an institution than I do today. Um, today, I'm much more conscious of, you know, are, there, are the resources present in the institution to create transformation. If they're not there, you know, creating from nothing, uh, supposedly God creates ex nihilo, 
I've never been able to do that. So I, I have to have the resources uh, to work with. When I went to the American College of Greece, um, I was in my 50s, uh, I guess I was 58 at the time, and I said to the board chair then, I said, no one has ever given me a palette this rich to paint with. If you give me this palette, I think we'll be able to paint something remarkable. That's all about the palette. It's all about the resources that were there. I think I, I think I have some capability of seeing those resources and imagining what you can do. But uh, if they're not there, um, my, my hat really goes off to the people who've been take, have taken meager resources and done something remarkable. Um, I don't think I've ever been able to accomplish that quite, but, but I've been able to work with some at, at, at the American College of Greece with a, a much better resource place, and that's made a huge difference. In regard to finding new resources, one strategy that you have pursued in your career is leading a merger. In fact, I believe you've led two mergers. What do you think about mergers, strategic alliances, collaborations, and the like as a strategy to consider in this current environment? So on the topic of mergers, I I, I'm unusual in that I've done two. Um, you know, mergers are still not all that common in higher education. Um, the first one I did was in 1985, and then in 2012, the American College of Greece merged, essentially acquired a, an independent graduate business school in Greece called ALBA, Graduate Business School. Um, so I do have some experience with, with the mergers. Um, I, will, I will say that, and there's literature on this, but from my own experience, uh, they are difficult to do. It is, it, I think they're especially difficult to do because higher education institutions are not, unlike corporations, are, they're not primarily money-driven. There are all sorts of other things involved, uh, values, egos, traditions, <laughs> that, that people hold very dear. And they, they will not give these things up easily. And if they're unwilling to give those things up, uh, mergers are very difficult to, uh, to accomplish. The Barrington merger, for example, entailed uh, the sale of the Barrington campus and the furloughing of most of the staff and faculty of Barrington College. This was my undergraduate alma mater. I essentially, um, you know, one image would be that I took it out to the woods and put a bullet through its brain with this merger, which is not an easy thing to do for your, of your undergraduate alma mater, except if you care deeply enough about the place, you can maybe believe that if anyone's gonna do it, it, it needs to be someone like you that loves the place and cares deeply. Uh, that, was very, that was a very difficult thing to do. Um, it, it was not a merger in which both schools flourished um, and uh, so it was, that was really entailed a significant loss of the Barrington heritage. But still, for me, it went back to what would serve the mission best of Barrington. Not the Barrington campus, not the Barrington faculty and staff like myself. I mean, I, I furloughed myself in the process of that merger. So, um, so those are, very, those are very difficult. Now the merger I did in Greece is one in which both institutions I think were able to flourish. And that, that is much better, but I will tell you, it's still very, very difficult. We try to do it by retaining a lot of the autonomy of the graduate business school. And we've done that, but it's something that you continuously work at. Um, so those, I think those are potential strategies there was a doctoral dissertation at Vanderbilt University written on the Barrington-Gordon merger, and they concluded it was a successful merger. But I, I'll tell you, as the author of it, it was painful on the Barrington side, but I think it was successful from the standpoint of serving the mission. And the resulting institution, I think, has been stronger, uh, even if the Barrington part of it was not as robust as some of us would have liked to have seen. Um, so I think those are possible, uh, but difficult. And uh, any form of collaboration uh, in higher education is, 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 takes, a lot of, takes a lot of work. Um, and, and so I, I, think, I think it is a strategy worth thinking about, but you shouldn't be naive about the simplicity, the ease with which you can execute it. 
you have the experience, you've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation status behind, with Baypath University, our innovative Doctorate of Education in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, ABD degree completion program, makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the executive management skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your faculty advisor to your small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. described as a serial innovator, as an innovative leader. Do you agree with that description? And assuming so, I'm curious how you account for your innovative mindset. Is this something you were born with? Is it something you've developed? And do you think it's possible to develop one's capacity for innovative thinking? We talked about the two mergers. And so when we did the Barrington merger in 1985, not many people how many institutions had done mergers? So yeah, I, I, and the fact that I was willing to do it in 1979 would suggest, you know, that early on I was, I was thinking a, a bit out of the box, uh, even at that stage of my career. It, I think one of the interesting uh, things that allowed me to be as, as adaptive as I have been is the fact that I, I'd like to believe that, that I let the facts take me to where, you know, they need to go, uh, as opposed to just being held to the status quo or held by emotion, whatever that might be. Uh, one example of that that I would give you that relates to innovation is, I was really early in my career a strong believer in, in aggressive tuition pricing. I won't go into all the details of why I thought that, but that's, that was my conviction. Over time, as I saw how higher education was developing, I ultimately got to the point, as you know, Melissa, because you were there in 2002, three and four, where I became a convert to the, to the need to restructure undergraduate tuition at some places in the place we were both working at North Park. So we were one of the early adopters, not the earliest, but a relatively early adopter of a tuition restructuring plan, taking tuition down by 30%. For me to, to, to get there was a pretty significant journey from an aggressive tuition guy to somebody who, who, who for at least North Park thought the tuition restructuring made, made sense. So I would say, yeah, that, that would be another evidence of my propensity for, for at, at least openness to something different. I remember you, Melissa, you, you invented a board game uh, at North Park that you called the organizational Velcro game. And, and that had to do with my propensity for changing the organizational structure and moving boxes around. I would say I've done, I've probably tried every conceivable organizational structure uh, that one could imagine in the course of my career. Um, and I keep doing it. I was working on one this morning, actually. But, uh, but I would also say I've developed some humility around that, that it, you know, the organization chart will only get you so far, no matter who you have. It's, it's a lot more important who's in the boxes than where the boxes are, I think. So um, 
but that even even that playing with organizational titles and structures and moves has been something I've been uh, pretty flexible about. Um, where I come by that is a little hard to say. I think it's been more intuitive. It's just been it's just kind of my nature. Uh, I do think the experience in the MBA curriculum that exposed me to a lot of business thinking that aligned rather well with my natural instincts anyway, uh, probably pushed me in that direction a bit more, gave me tools to think about how to think about those, uh, those issues. So uh, yeah, I'd, I would plead guilty to being somewhat innovative, at least relatively speaking, in an in a, in a, in a industry that doesn't, doesn't screech innovation all the time. How would you counsel others, particularly senior leaders or those who aspire to senior levels of the institution who want to become more innovative? So I think exposure to some things that can be taught uh, would be helpful, but, it, but it, I think it also depends on, you know, sort of the ability to have an imagination, the ability to, uh, to think imaginatively in organizational ways. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with the ability to listen, uh, listen to, to the rhythms inside an organization, but also listen to and pay attention to what's going on outside the organization. Um, I think it has a lot to do with curiosity uh, and, 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 and wanting to take in, to take in more. Uh, I don't know, I've, I've always thought that when, uh, wh however you get your DNA, uh, that whenever mine was handed out, I missed the risk averse DNA. I just, I'm, my mind always goes to the opportunities and what can be done with the opportunity. And I, I very often overlook the political, uh, you know, risks that are entailed or other kinds of risks. I'm just not very risk oriented. And, but I think that's helpful for in innovation, but I, it's not, that's not something I worked on. It's just, it's the way I'm wired. So, uh, but I think uh, if you're wired that way uh, to, to develop some, some of the technical ways of assessing risk and assessing opportunities to be more uh, disciplined about it and, uh, and also to have people around you who will, who will challenge uh, and for you to be open to those open to those challenges. In terms of people who are aspiring to become vice presidents, presidents, or those senior administrative positions, um, some of the things I would suggest from my experience, uh, one I'd start with would be to develop what I would call your collegial intelligence. Uh, I say this because I think the way a lot of people get move up the administrative ladder is by being strong performers um, in their, in whatever area they're, they're in. And I, and that is an absolute essential. That's what I look for in the people that, that we hire. I, I'm looking for proven achievement, passion for work, somebody who really focuses on deliverables. But the farther up the organization you go, I think it becomes more critical to have what I'm calling collegial intelligence. And I've seen a lot of folks who were great, great performers, even some tragic situations I'm thinking about personally, great performers who, because they couldn't figure out how to get along laterally with other senior people, became sufficiently irrita irritating to an organization that they don't survive. Uh, that, that can happen, I think, with board, working with boards of trustees if you get to the higher levels of administration or with senior administrators in an, in an institution. So, you know, learning how to play in the sandbox with other senior people as well as junior people as you move up, I think becomes even, even more important. I have finally, I, I, I have always uh, recommended to colleagues, junior and senior, that I think the best form of job security that you can have in an organization is to understand what, what is the definition of strategic success for that organization. In other words, what is the organization trying to do? What does it need to do to be successful? And try to figure out how your position, your area can be used to support that strategic success. Uh, 
You know, institutions love people who help them be successful. And uh, I think most institutions lay out what they're trying to do. Uh, they, they, they usually there's a strategic plan or something that'll explain what, where we're trying to get. And if, if whatever area you're responsible for, you can try to figure out how can we most creatively support that direction. I think that's the kind of thing that, that builds uh, a successful uh, career. But I think thinking people about thinking becoming vice presidents and presidents, I would encourage those people to also think very strongly about fit. Um, I think that, that different personalities, different backgrounds fit better uh, in different circ institutional circumstances. The higher you go in an organization, the more important it is for you to be a true believer in whatever the mission of that organization is. Um, the higher you go, I think the more important it is that you're comfortable with the culture, whatever it happens to be, uh, and that you're comfortable with the resources that I was talking about earlier. You're not going to get too frustrated. If it's a limited, you know, you might be a person with great skill and ambition, but if you're in a limited resource place, you may not be able with, with those limited resources to, to get the kind of reward that'll keep you motivated in doing your work. So not everybody's well suited to a resource constrained environment or other, you know, I just think it's really important to think not just about being a vice president or a president, but thinking about the fit in the right kind of place that's going to be good for the institution and good for you. David, you are every bit as creative and as resilient as you were when I first met you over 30 years ago. How do you stay resilient and fresh in your thinking, particularly when you are at an institution for as long as you have served as president? This year I turned 70 and I, I have no intention of stopping anytime soon. I was once the youngest college president in the United States. I'm, I still have a ways to go before I'm the oldest. Uh, Leon Botstein has me still beaten there. So, uh, so obviously I enjoy the work. Um, and I guess that, uh, that, that assumes a certain amount, a certain amount of resilience. Um, so first of all, I'll repeat the fit question. I think being in the right place that fits you for whatever, you know, that's a multi-attribute, uh, issue that you have to look at, but being in a place that for whatever reason fits you is going to make you, is going to make you more resilient. Uh, it so happens that I sleep very easily. Uh, I did, I did for over a period of three years after I left North Park, I did a lot of executive search work. I did more searches in higher education than anybody between 2004 and 2000, 2005 and 2008. And uh, so I worked with probably 50 search committees and you could count on the following question, always the search committees always wanted to ask this question of candidates presidents or vice presidents, can you tell us what keeps you up at night and in our institution? And I would try to tell them, look, you don't want somebody who can't sleep at night because they're ulcerating over the, they're, they're going to have plenty on their plate. And if they are someone who loses sleep easily, they are not well suited to the job. So I never was successful in getting search committees to stop asking that question, but I always thought it was the wrong question. Um, so I'm fortunate I sleep easily on planes. Um, but, but I, for me, that's, you know, that's, that's part of, uh, you know, keeping my, keeping my, my energy up. But I would say more important than that is, is you also know from working with me, Melissa, is I, I like, I would like to think that I work hard, very hard that I, that for me, my work is my play. Uh, so I don't take a lot of vacations. It's not like I rejuvenate myself by uh, spending a lot of time on the beach or anything like that. I'm almost, even if I'm on the beach, I'm probably thinking about a new organizational structure or a new academic program or something like that that we could, we could launch. Uh, but the fact is, I just have fun at my work. I don't make a big for me, it's not, I, I don't, it's never felt like work. It's felt like passion. It's felt like calling. It's felt, it's felt like um, I was doing something significant socially, uh, contributing positively to people's lives. And, and 
hugely importantly, I enjoy the people I work with, not just the close associates, but I like, um, I like faculty. I, 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 I can even enjoy a faculty meeting. And, uh, and, and so I like academic personalities. I also enjoy the other personalities. And I think everyone who works on this is one of the important things I think to learn is that every role in a college or university is a critical role, it's an important role, whether it's the, whether it's the retention officer, or the, the janitor, or the coach, the counselor, uh, the admissions staff, the library, every, you know, it, it works as a whole or it doesn't work well. And so I, I just, I enjoy these personalities. Uh, and, and, and for me, the resilience, I think, comes from all of that. It's just, it's, 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 not, it's not a burden. So David, as you look back over your professional journey, what achievements are you most proud of and why? And is there a failure? So the la that last question, failure, is, is in a sense the toughest one for me um, because, because my brain is, very, is wired in a very futuristic way. I do not spend a lot of time um, thinking about the past. I think about learning from the past to go, you know, to go, go into the future. I would say that one of the most important um, failures in my life that actually has had, a, has had a carryover into my higher education career was as an undergraduate, I quit the basketball team at Brown University. I, I graduated from Barrington, but I transferred there from Brown in my junior year. And in my sophomore year, I, I, I gave up for reasons that we don't need to go into, uh, uh, something that had been a passion of mine for many, many years and still actually is a passion of mine, which is the game of basketball. And um, having that experience of, I, when I went to Barrington, part of the reason I went there was I could play again. So I picked it back up, but I learned about the pain of giving up too early on something that you value. And I've, I've never forgotten that lesson. So one of the things I've tried to do through my career is to just not give up. You know, Winston Churchill had the famous line about never give up, never give up, never give up uh, as being, you know, really the important thing about, about success as a nation or as an individual. I think that persistence is so important. And so um, that, was an early, that was an early failure that I hope I haven't, I haven't repeated. Um, certainly, in many respects, the merger of Barrington and Gordon felt like a failure. I mean, in some ways, people would say, all right, that was courageous and that was creative. But, you know, that was really hard to do. And it, it, it felt like it was not where I wanted to take the school uh, in, in my preferred scenario. So I, it was just out of the belief that we couldn't get there, whether it was me leading it or somebody else leading it, it just wasn't going to get there. For me, the most impressive things that institutionally I've been associated with have occurred at the American College of Greece. And the reason it's impressive is because almost all of it took place in the context of what is known as the Great Greek Depression. Uh, over an eight-year period, twice as long as the U.S. Depression of 1929, Greece lost uh, unemployment equal to the U.S. Great Depression, GDP uh, uh, shrinkage equal to the Great Depression of the U.S. So it was twice as long, but as deep as the U.S. Depression of 1929, which today, because of COVID, we have some renewed appreciation for what that feels like. Greece went through that for eight years, and those were eight of my first nine years in the school. In that context of a Great Depression, we managed uh, to create from scratch a study abroad program that now enrolls 26% of all of the national universities listed in US News and World Report send us students. We shifted the undergraduate profile from a middle 50% of 2.4 to 3.4 when I started. It's now 3.4 to 3.8, a one point shift on a four point scale. I don't know any school that shifted a, an undergraduate profile that far that fast. Um, We've, we doubled the enrollment of the high school. That was one of its problems. Uh, we've gone from 800 students in the high school to almost 1,600 students in the high school. And we also inherited a program from the Harvard School of Public Health that's helped make Greece the leader in the European Union in smoking reduction, which is a major health. Before COVID, this was the major health challenge of Greece. 
too many smokers and a huge public health bill, because it's a public health system, uh, a ticking time bomb for the country. And we've made a major, we've had funding to do a major initiative to reduce uh, smoking prevalence in Greece, and it now leads the European Union. Now, so those are some of the things that have happened at the American College of Greece that I'm most proud of. But it all goes back to the resources and the context situation. Those things happened. Uh, I mean, the school was as rich when I went there as it is today. So it isn't just the resources that made it happen, but someone who could see what you could do with those resources, could see the opportunities, and then had the resources to make those plays play a long game, not a short game, um, because we had the resources. It's, it's produced that context and the position of the school has produced remarkable results. And part of it has to do with leadership. A bigger part of it has to do with the execution of the people who execute the strategy, which isn't me, it's about 800 other people who've bought into the strategy and really executed it well. And we've had the resources to, uh, to make it happen. But those to me are the most impressive, but it's impressive because the school's impressive. Let me end our conversation by asking you about what's on the horizon. Are there some things you're still looking to achieve at the American College of Greece? More broadly, what do you see ahead for higher education and what should we all be paying attention to right now? Um, at the American College of Greece, we're looking at a number of things. Um, where we are intending to start an elementary school. This may sound like a strange thing for a higher ed person to be up to, but we're actually the only private school in the Athens market that has a high school, but not an elementary school. So we're about to acquire a campus to add an elementary school. We're thinking about adding an international curriculum school. Uh, in, in a foreign context at the pre-collegiate level, Amer uh, American educational initiatives either go after what is called a national curriculum school or an international curriculum school where you teach an English-based curriculum or the national curriculum school in our case is a Greek Greece language-based curriculum, which is what we have at the pre-collegiate level. We're thinking of adding an international curriculum school to our Greek-based curriculum school and then linking that to a new school of education. We don't have a school of education in the university at this point. We're thinking of adding that and then using ourselves as with the international school and the national curriculum school and our, our, our US institution abroad university, using ourselves as our own laboratory for how do you do American-based education in an international context. And, and we, we have ourselves you know, that we can use as a laboratory to study. So that's one of the things that we're, uh, that we're thinking a, a lot about. A second thing that we're thinking a lot about is the triangulation coming out of COVID-19 of public health, economic growth, and civic engagement. We actually have three institutes that we formed recently that actually work in these areas. And coming out of the COVID-19 experience, we think this is really a critical thing, not just for Greece, but for all uh, Western-based democratic institutions where you have to figure out how do you get, how do you get citizens to cooperate wearing masks, at the same time, uh, pursue public health, uh, you know, public health safety protocols, and at the same time, not kill the economy, and hopefully make a, a basis for an economy that's going to be able to withstand these kinds of challenges. This kind of triangulation, I think, is a huge international challenge. So that's something that we're thinking about. A third thing that we're thinking about is how to more creatively express our connection into the United States with U.S. institutions. So we have several initiatives. Um, going that way. In terms of broader, uh, just I'll mention one broad theme that I think has been there for a long time, but remain, remains to be the case, and that is the whole challenge of affordability and access in the U.S. context. Uh, the whole, uh, the, the wealth gap, the, the, the income gap, uh, the income disparity that's developed in our society, I think is, 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 is a huge challenge. Um, and I think I, I, I liken it to, you know, cooking the frog slowly on a pot of, uh, on, on the boiling pot so that you just turn up the heat gradually. The frog doesn't know that it's being boiled. I think that's what's happened in American higher education around tuition. If you increase 
above the rate of inflation by 2%. It doesn't sound all that alarming. But if you do that for 30 consecutive years, you get, you, you get to where we are now in American higher education with tuition at utterly unsustainable levels. Um, and, and, and that has also fed into the problem of people getting access uh, to the American education system. So I think all of that need, continues to be a huge issue. One of the things I'm really concerned with is that the public policy needs to be developed around this that's intelligent and nuanced. I, I submitted an op-ed to the New York Times when Bernie Sanders came out with his free public university initiative. And I, my op-ed argued that that's not a good idea for the US based on my experience in Greece, which has free public university, but a, a catastrophic public university system. Fortunate for me, the New York Times didn't publish the op-ed. Uh, but um, but I, am, I, 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 I think that the financing of higher education needs to be rethought. I'm in favor of a lot of innovation in that space. My concern is that the public policy is going to be too blunt an instrument and that what we want is something that will take advantage of both the private and the public sectors of American higher education, play to the strengths of the diversity of that system um, in a way that really capitalizes on, on, on what I, I think is the finest system in the world, but really needs to be re-engineered. Melissa Morris-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson, Marcy Moore, and Sequoia Cox. Ingenious You is a production of CELLUP, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education monthly webinar series. If you like what you hear on this podcast, review and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share Ingenious You with your friends and your colleagues so that they too can join our community. In next week's episode, I sit down with the distinguished academic and inspiring thought leader, Dr. Susan Campbell Baldridge, serving most recently as executive vice president and provost at Middlebury College in Vermont. Susan is the co-author of a book that has received enormous attention by higher ed leaders and observers around the country. In the book, The College Stress Test, Tracking Institutional Futures Across a Crowded Marketplace, Susan and her co-authors suggest that at least 10% of colleges and universities nationwide are at severe risk of not making it. In our conversation, Susan shares her insights about the research, which grounds the author's observations, as well as her recommendations for what college leaders can do right now to ensure a sustainable future for their institutions. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.